0: The reading from today is from Exodus 35, 20 through 25. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings, and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicated an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarn or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or... Goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought them. It as the Lord's contribution, and everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right. Thank you, Rachel. Good morning, Redemption. Good morning. Uh, it's good to see you for our last day of the book of Exodus. And so if you want to just go to chapter 35, that's where we'll be for uh, a lot of the time, although we're going to go uh, eventually end with 40. Um, But we are in our last week of Exodus, and before we get into it, let me just pray, and we'll uh, get started. Uh, Lord God, again, uh, we're grateful for your word and its truth, and I just pray again uh, that the Holy Spirit would take your word and apply it to the hearts of your people, and God, if there's anybody here who doesn't believe that your Holy Spirit would stir in their heart and in their mind as well, uh, and that they would see the beauty of what you have to say uh, the truth of what you have to say and how it's rooted in your love. Uh, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, if you're new, by the way, welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm primarily uh, the one who speaks on, Sunday, on Sundays during the services. And we've been spending the last 15 weeks in the book of Exodus Uh, It's been a great series, but it's been a really short series considering the fact that the book is 40 chapters long and we took 15 weeks to do it. And today is indicative of that. We're going to look at six chapters. So obviously not reading every verse, but today is the glorious finish of this key book. The reason Exodus is key is because if you understand Exodus, it gives you tremendous insight uh, into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Who he is, what his mission is, what his purpose is. Uh, And also, the true meaning of the gospel. Uh, I I have been absolutely overwhelmed by the number of people who have come to me and said, uh, and by the way, when we started this, there was a lot of trepidation. We're going to do Exodus but the number of people who have come to me in recent weeks and said, I'm so glad we've done Exodus because it's given me a greater appreciation and understanding for who Jesus is and exactly what the gospel is all about. And so I think that's uh, really good news. And by the way, just to give you a little preview, I'm going to be relaying a lot today about what people say to me as a pastor. And some of it's good, like I just mentioned, and some of it's going to be a little bit challenging. But I just want to caution you on that because I'm going I'm to give a lot of illustrations like that. I won't be naming names, okay? but uh, just sort of generally talking about common themes that I hear. But having been through um, the book of Exodus, I wanted to refresh our look at the major themes in Exodus and talk a little bit about them uh, before we get into the text today. So the first one is just knowing God. That is a big deal in the book of Exodus, is, is that God wants us to know Him. That is foundational to life, especially living in a culture right now Where everybody's primary value seems to be, I need to know myself before I can figure out the rest of the world. And God says, no, the best way that you can know yourself is to first know me. To make me the priority, know me, and then you'll be able to understand and know yourself even better. Uh, If you're lacking in self-awareness, the best thing to do is first look at who God is, look at Jesus and his life and ministry, and that's how you can know yourself best. So Exodus is really good at that. Here's the second thing, not the third thing, the second thing. Here's the second thing. Uh, The book of Exodus values true worship. And and I thought a lot about this, and, and I've come to the conclusion um, and this is, not nothing, this is nothing new, uh, other people have said it too, but this is, this is true. Um, what we value is what we're going to worship and what we're going to serve. So if you're wondering about worship, maybe the first question we should ask ourselves is what do we value and how much are we valuing it? It's not necessarily that these things that we value are bad things. It's when we value them more than God and we begin to worship and serve them in a way that only we should only be uh, worshiping and serving God. That's the challenge. Are we worshiping and serving our career more than God? Are we worshiping and serving our pursuit of happiness more than God? Are we worshiping and serving our... <clears throat> Our children and our marriage more than God. Let me tell you something. The best thing that you can do for your marriage and for your children is to worship and serve God, not worship and serve your marriage and your children. This is what this is about, true worship. Who are we going to value above all? And is it going to be God, in fact? Here's a third thing. The value of life, created order, design, and purpose. Um, Again, I mentioned this last week, the number of times that Exodus forces us to look back at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Genesis 1 and 2, the creation narratives, the created order, the design and purpose that God had in mind for us, and then Exodus 3, how we blew it all apart with sin, And so there's value in in God's purpose, his design, and his created order. And, And that's the purpose of the gospel, is to start bringing us back to that original created design, purpose, and order. And Exodus pushes into that, and that leads to the fourth thing, which is a serious and intentional as opposed to casual relationship with God. The only way we can start pushing into that created order and understanding it is if we take our relationship with God and his son Jesus seriously and not casually. In, in other words, is, uh, do we kind of keep Jesus over in the corner until we really think we need him or, is, or are we allowing him to uh, influence and do everything with us every single day? That's our second value at Redemption Church. All of life is all for uh, Jesus. And then that pushes again into the fifth uh, observation, and that is that uh, the insufficiency of fallen humanity, the insufficiency of fallen humanity. Again, we live in a culture, always have lived in this culture uh, since the beginning of time, since the beginning of sin, where people are sure that we have way more wisdom than God does. And it's just fascinating. We, we push into human wisdom. We're always pursuing the latest book, the latest guru, the latest talk, whatever that is. And again, many of those things are good. I'm a podcast guy. I listen to all sorts of podcasts. I think that's really helpful. I read a ton, as many of you know, and I think that's helpful. But, but ultimately, I'm, I'm straining all of that through the wisdom of God and not human wisdom because the, the insufficiency of human wisdom is just all around us. It's amazing how how we jump on something as a fad and we're just certain that this is the thing that's going to deliver us the fulfillment and the joy that we've always uh, sought after and then two years later we're on to something else. And this is still around. The wisdom of God is still around. And then here's the last one, number six. Life is far more wilderness than oasis. Life is far more wilderness than it is oasis. And we need to understand that because, again, we live in this culture that, that really teaches and believes, and we buy into it, this idea that you and I deserve and that you and I should only ever have to live in an oasis, in a mountaintop experience, that all of life is going to be this beautiful, perfect, tension-free, uh, no-trouble kind of existence. And that's just not true. It's not even true Most of the time, it's not even true for the significant part of the time. Most of the time, we are in the wilderness. And the question is, how are we going to get through the wilderness? Uh, One person writes this about this difference. The difference between salvation and sanctification is wilderness. We've been saved But we have not had the new Jerusalem come, Jesus hasn't come yet again, and so we're still working our way through this wilderness of this world, this fallen world. And so the difference between salvation and sanctification, the working through of the wilderness, is this wilderness, which rather than living in and learning from, we try to escape. That seems to be our our thought process when it comes to the gospel. It is, again, amazing to me how many people will come to Jesus and then place this expectation on the gospel and on Jesus that you cannot find anywhere in the Bible. In fact, you find just the opposite. That the purpose of Jesus in my life and the purpose of the gospel is to make it so that I have no problems in life, no challenges, no suffering, no tribulation, no trials, and yet Jesus tells us all the time, in this world you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome this world. And so he, here's the question. Have you come to the gospel? Have you, have you come to Jesus in order to get around or get pulled out of all of life's tough situations or to allow Jesus to do what he said he was going to do, which is to walk with you through those, life tush, t- those tough life situations? That's what the gospel is designed to do he says but take heart i have overcome the world you're going to have this trouble and i'm not here to get you out of the trouble i'm here to walk through it with you it's even in the old testament It's joshua chapter 1 verse 8 when god is telling joshua before he has the most difficult challenge of his life he's going to lead the people of israel into uh, jericho and to take jericho and joshua must have been sitting there that night before with all kinds of trepidation and god goes to him And he says, Listen, you are to be bold and confident because I'm with you. That's what he says, because I am with you. That's the key here. I am fascinated, here you go, with what people say all the time. I am fascinated with the number of times I run into people who say things like this If God really loved me, he would get me out of this job. If God really loved me, he would change my boss. If God really loved me, He would fix my marriage. And and that fixing of the marriage always has something to do with the spouse and not yourself. If God really loved me, He would get me out of this situation. If God really loved me, He would give me happiness. It's amazing how we pursue all of these things at the expense of God being with us. That's the joy, that's the fulfillment. And I'm telling you, it. it I, I know, getting the gospel out of movies is one of my favorite things. But yes, you can do it. It's when Jimmy Dugan, Tom Hanks' character, goes to Gina Davis in a League for Their Own, and and Gina Davis says, "I quit. I'm not going to do it anymore." Why are you quitting? It just got too hard. And what did he say? He said, "It's supposed to be hard." If it wasn't hard, everybody would do it. The heart is what makes it great. That's what God is calling us to. He's calling us to greatness, not because we're gonna have great results, but because he is with us, and that's his promise. And we need to remember that. And so embrace the wilderness because God is with you in the wilderness. So two weeks ago, we had plans for the tabernacle, and now the tabernacle is gonna get built in these six uh, chapters. And again, we have Just incredible detail in these chapters. If you put them together, 13 of the 40 chapters have to do with the building of the tabernacle. That should tell us how important uh, this is uh, to God. But we usually just run past these chapters. So we're going to slow down and, and take a look a little bit at its significance. And wouldn't you know it, if you read the first three verses of chapter 35, they're not the ones that Rachel read. I gave her a different reading for today, but if you look at the first three verses of chapter 35, they're getting ready to build the tabernacle. What does God open with in his message to the people? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. Again with the Sabbath. Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. How many of you are sick and tired of hearing about the Sabbath? Okay, God is the one who keeps bringing it up. It's not me. I'm only preaching the text here, okay? Okay. God keeps bringing it up. He reminds them before they start their work on the tabernacle that they need to honor the Sabbath because that's one of the best ways they're going to be able to do their work is to take a day off from their work every single week. But again, we live in this culture that doesn't value time off. It doesn't value reflection. It doesn't doesn't value rest. We maybe value it, but we're just not prone to do it. Uh, we, we don't value reflecting on what God has for us in our life. God says, honor the Sabbath because that's going to help you those other six days be even more productive. He says, honoring a day of worship and rest is an important way to be able to get this, this, um, this tabernacle done. But we're convinced, we are so convinced that our happiness is going to come from our work. And that's a good thing if you're happy in your work. But if you're working way harder than you should because you think it's going to somehow fulfill you in a way way that only God can can fulfill you, you're in big trouble, man, because that's never going to happen. We are certain, so many of us are certain, uh, most of you know I teach communication at at, at, uh, one of the community colleges, and I am absolutely fascinated. I I would argue, just from my observation, that the number one value in every college student's life is the pursuit of happiness. Happiness. That's what they're all tuned into. I just want to be happy. I want. To, and by the way, they're miserable in classes. But I just want. I, so I don't get that. But they just want to be happy. I'm just pursuing happiness. And what just fascinates me is that for decades now, um, PhD researchers have been researching this pursuit of happiness. And here's what they have all found: for those people who are pursuing happiness, they're never going to find it because happiness never comes from a pursuit of it. Happiness always comes as a byproduct of a pursuit of something bigger and better. Always. That's just common knowledge. The problem is, is that it's just not very common among people. We're certain that if we pursue happiness, we'll be happy. No, God says pursue Him, and then all of these other things will be added unto you that's what he says and that's true so so this pursuit whatever it is that is that is causing us to lay aside this sabbath we're making a mistake find your sabbath have your day of rest have your day of reflection have your day of focusing on God one of the greatest joys of my life is when I ask a staff member to do something and they say I can't do it on that day that's my sabbath That's good, that's good. Now, if a staff member has a Sabbath on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then we got a little problem, but but it is, it's great. Nope, that's my Sabbath day. Okay, we'll figure it out because God wants us to honor that. That's important and we should be leading in that as well. And then God says, here you go. Some of you think, okay, good, I'm glad the tough part of the sermon is over. Not really. Here we go. God says you can't build anything without funding resources and people. You cannot build anything without funding, resources, and people. How many of you have built businesses? How many of you have done it without funding, without resources, and without people? I'd just like to see a show of hands. Uh, it just sort of happened. I woke up one day and there it was. Okay. It doesn't work. Listen, listen to what um, 35, 4 through 9 says. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of, gener- of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned rams, skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breast piece. Here you go. Funding, resources, and people are necessary for ministry. You cannot get around that. Funding, resources, and people are necessary for ministry. Here you go. I am continually amazed at the number of people who want to mitigate the call that God has on their life with a, tru- a number of what I think are truly num- uh, uh, truly ridiculous uh, statements. And before I say this, let me just say, um, some of you know Tom Schrader. I knew him for 30 years before he passed away in in January. He was my my spiritual mentor. He's like a father to me. Uh, 30 years ago when I started going to his Bible studies, I I was just blown away. The the best Bible teacher I have ever heard in my life. Can I get at least one amen from somebody? Yeah, okay. It's it's just incredible, okay? But I will tell you that for the first um, 10 years or so before I was in ministry, when he would tell stories about ministry, I would say, eh, that's probably some pastoral hyperbole and exaggeration, or he's got to be making that up, because it just, it didn't sound real. I mean, and then I got into ministry, and it's real, man. I'm telling you, there is no hyperbole, no exaggeration here. So uh, God is calling people, and here are the things that I hear sometimes. You know what? I've done my part for the church. I'm just going to sit back now and be served. Okay, I'd like to see the verse. Do you have a verse for that? Anybody? Anybody got a verse for that? I want to see that verse. I don't think it's there. Here's another one. I have lots of good ideas for how we can help people and serve others and and start programs in the church, but really, I'm not going to do it. That's for me to pass on to the staff because the staff's supposed to do all of that. Okay? Again, give me a verse. I'd like to see that verse. Here's what you're going to find if you read the Bible. It says that what pastors and church staffs do is that they equip and train the people for ministry. That's what the Bible says. That's one of the things, believe it or not, that I'm doing up here on Sunday morning is helping to equip you so that you can go out and live all of life all for Jesus and you can be gospel-centered and outward-focused. That's the idea. I'm, I'm equipping you. So come on, give me a verse about how only the church staff is supposed to be ministering uh, to people. I know some of you are like, well, I got, yeah, I got it. It's, it's from the book of 1st Nordstrom's, chapter 1. No, 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 no. Here, now, here's one of my favorites. Here's one of my favorites. I get this a lot, especially when I do like today and talk about giving money, okay? Because I'm going to talk about that next if you thought this was rough, okay? So here you go. One of my favorites. You know, Frank, if you were really faithful, if you were really strong in your faith, you wouldn't worry about money and revenue for the church. You just wouldn't. My first question there is always, and how's that working for you in your own business and in your own house? Is that how you do it in your place? Just kind of willy-nilly? You know, if the money's there, great. We'll just spend money, and if it's, whatever. It'll It'll be fine. Is that how you do it? The church is called actually to an even higher standard of this. We're called to be stewards of God's money that you have entrusted us with. And so, and, and Jesus also says, look, before you build a tower, there's got to be a plan. And so we have plans. And so we actually do look at this stuff. And we're very concerned about it. And we should be because we are called to. How, here, how many of you are fans of The Office? You like to watch The Office? Okay. Okay, for the rest of you, you need to buck up and get with the program. Because you're never going to understand any of my sermon illustrations unless you watch The Office. But there's that, um, there's that uh, episode I think it's season four, that episode where Jan just got fired, and she's moved in with Michael in Scranton, and now she's just spending money, like it's going out of style. And so Michael and Jan are in his office at one point, and she's talking about remodeling his entire condo that he just moved into, and everything was new anyway. She wants to remodel the whole thing. And he says to her, Jan, how much is all of this going to cost? And what did she say? The first service knew the answer to this. I don't know what's wrong with you people. Here's what she said. Michael, it costs what it costs. How would you like it if that's the way we ran the church? Just spending money, and if one of you says, hey, how much is that going to cost? It costs what it costs. It'll be fine. You see, it, God calls us. And we should respond because of what he's done Uh, for us through jesus Uh, two things here i'll be the first to tell you that not everybody is called or stirred by god to give financially not everybody is that's true the body of christ god's people is made up of many different parts with many different giftedness uh, and callings and contributions that's what it means to be a body and the one stacking chairs the one making coffee like renee does um, is just as much a part of the body as anybody who writes a check and builds a building. We need to understand that we can't operate without all parts of the body. But if God is stirring you to give and you're making excuses about it, it kind of sounds like God is calling you and you're telling him to get lost. That never ends well. Just in case you're wondering. Okay. And here's the second thing. Even here. Even here in the Old Testament, it backs up what I'm saying. The giving of wealth and resources is about generosity, empathy, and a stirring of the heart. It's not about compulsion. That's what makes it hard to talk about this stuff from the front. Because if I talk about it from the front, it sounds like compulsion. But what I'm trying to do is teach you about God's call and his stewardship on our lives. Okay? And furthermore, we really do need to be honest with ourselves about it. When God is stirring with you and you're coming up with excuses, be honest about that and maybe just do what he's calling you to do. Uh, Good time to wrestle with this probably. It's year end and I've been here eight years now and at the end of the year, Uh, You know, you have year. Most people at the end of the year, they 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 do a uh, sort of a reconciliation of their finances. They're looking ahead at the next year. They're budgeting. They're getting their year-end bonuses. All of that stuff. And historically, Redemption Arcadia has been very, very uh, generous at the end of the year, Uh, especially with our Advent offering that we do every year. Every year, we ask you to give over and above your regular giving. Uh, for the operation of the church and give to our Advent offering. And we always split it three ways between three ministries that don't have anything really to do with us. It's our way of giving back uh, to the community, both locally and uh, globally. And and, uh, every other year, we're required that one of those is going to be redemption foster care and adoption. Uh, so for, for the benefit of, of foster care kids. Uh, this year is not one of those years, and so here's what we're doing this year. The first one is um, not necessarily writing a check, but rather it's, it's, it's giving a gift. Um, every year, the Alhambra congregation, which is in one of the lowest resourced areas of Maricopa County, and it's only five miles down the road from us, uh, they have something called affordable Christmas. Uh, and... and They depend a large part, not totally, but a large part on the the Arcadia congregation to be able to help them uh, to resource that with with, um, gifts for children. And so we have a list, if you don't have one of these sheets, you need to get one, they're out there in the the lobby, you need to get one of these sheets, because it'll tell you all the different things that we could use, and that's why we have that rolling uh, bookshelf thing there, is so so that you can on Sunday bring your gifts for uh, affordable Christmas for Alhambra, that's a big deal, and we want to be generous uh, to our our brothers and sisters at our Alhambra congregation in doing that. And then on the day of affordable Christmas, it's a Saturday in December, uh, you can also sign up to go and serve there, so you can help them uh, pull, off the, um, uh, pull off the event, so that's a way of also serving as well. But then the three things that we're going to be uh, doing this year, that we're going to be actually writing checks to at the end of uh, the year, uh, are alongside ministries, that's the prison transition ministry, we had them here a couple weeks ago, uh, we've been partnering with them for years, and this is a year that we want to be able to bless them. Uh, The second thing is Hope for Children Ethiopia. We've been involved with Hope uh, for Children Ethiopia for three or four years now. And and let me just say this this is really good news. We are now up to 110 different children in Ethiopia that this congregation alone is supporting on a monthly basis. That's really good. That is really good. But it also takes, it also takes uh, administration money to be able to run that operation. Uh, and so we're, we're going to be writing them a check this year for their administration and leadership as well. And then Immigrant Hope, uh, which is located in, uh, at Redemption West Mesa. And, and I will tell you, uh, this is, Immigrant Hope is a really important ministry that got started last year in West Mesa, and they're about now to launch. They've just about ha- gotten all of their clearances from the government to be able to do this. Here's what you need to understand about Immigrant Hope. Immigrant Hope has been fully vetted by all of Redemption Church because we know that there are a number of people who would say, I'm all for immigration, but they need to do it legally. And you need to understand that the only way that Immigrant Hope is going to help is if they do it legally. They've said that if somebody has overstayed their visa, they can pray for them, but they're not going to be able to help them legally. They help with all the legal trouble of getting somebody into uh, the United States on a legal basis, and they are a ministry which allows them to tell them about about Jesus and about the gospel, which is a beautiful thing. And so those are the three things that we're going to be, uh, the three ministries that we're going to be writing checks to uh, this year. Now, Having said that, indulge me for a few more minutes and let me talk about the other side, the flip side of that coin. Uh, this last week, every year, uh, about, this, about the, the week uh, uh, before Thanksgiving, uh, Redemption Central has a large meeting with all of their full-time employees and we do a, like a leadership conference for a day. But also in the midst of that, our um, executive pastor, Neil Pitchell, comes and gives a presentation on what the benefits are going to be for full-time employees at Redemption Church. And you just need to know that we have one of the best health care plans, certainly of any church. Most churches don't even offer health care plans. But uh, our health care plan, frankly, would, would, would make some of you guys jealous in corporate America. Uh, it is really good. We've been with Blue Cross Blue Shield for two years, but they jacked us for 25% this year, so we're going back to United Healthcare. It's still a really, really good plan. And, and frankly, as Jackie and I have been getting older and, and having more surgeries, <clears throat> excuse me, procedures, as, we, as we've been having more procedures, we've really benefited uh, from the fact that they cover us there. They have a 403B plan, which is like a 401K, a matching 403B Plan, which I tell every full-time employee, if you're not giving the max to that, you're crazy. It's like it, because the church matches whatever you give, up to four um, percent. Uh, they have disability insurance that they pay for that you're automatically signed up for if you're a full-time employee. They have term life insurance that you can elect to buy. You've got to pay the premium, but it's really cheap. They have dental and they have vision. And I know some of you are like right now, well, how do I get a job at Redemption Church? You know? But it is. It's, it's, it's an incredible benefits package, including vacation, paid vacation. So an incredible benefits package. And you need to understand that if it weren't for you, we would not be able to do that for our employees. You, they wouldn't be able to do that for me. And we really appreciate it. And we're very thankful Uh, Because of your generosity that we're able uh, to do that. But Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, always said that is part of the stewardship of the church is taking care of the people who are leading the church. That was one of his central values uh, for 30 years as a leader in the church. So there are reminders all through this process, especially in chapter 35, that hearts are stirred and generosity reigns. And that includes verses 10 through 19 that talk about the importance of skilled labor. In other words, maybe you don't have anything to give, but you have skilled labor, and so you can come and help build the tabernacle. And that skilled labor came from both men and women. Let me reread a couple of the verses that Rachel read for us. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, And brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of the meeting and for its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. And those contributions were also in skilled uh, labor. And we need to understand that. And and so, um, with the funding in hand, they finally get started on the construction, verses 30 through 35. Then Moses said to the people of Israel See, the Lord has called by name Basilel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, and with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamech, of the tribe of Dan, that name Dan is so difficult to pronounce. Um, He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroider in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. So this paragraph is like God and his people 101. There are four things that I see clearly in this paragraph that are so important to us today. Number one. God calls us. God calls us. I remember when I became a Christian, and a couple years later, God called me to start teaching as a volunteer in the college and career ministry at North Phoenix Baptist Church. And I responded, even though I felt like, I don't know what I'm doing. But I also know that God equips those that He calls. He also started calling me to give in a more sacrificial way not by looking at percentages but by giving what my heart bound by the holy spirit was telling me to give and then and then 20 years ago he started calling me into vocational ministry and i and i responded even though i tell you i never thought i was going to do this and i specifically at one time told god i would never become a pastor a vocational pastor and yet here i stand here i stand because god calls his people and if you are his through jesus christ he's going to call you to something god has never called you to be a bench warmer he's going to call you to something in fact right now i can hear the holy spirit right now calling some of you to children's ministry i can hear it so clearly (laughs) let me say something about about children's ministry um we are envied by so many other churches here at Redemption Arcadia because of our children's ministry. Do you know how many children we have in that ministry? When you start doing the, the ratio work of adults to children, we're as high as any church in the nation, and people are envious of that. The fact that we even have a You know, there are a lot of churches that don't even have a children's ministry anymore because the church has gotten so old, and they haven't done anything to reach the next generation. Do you know how God has blessed us in the midst of that? And people literally are envious of, of the activity. Part of the reason I know they're envious is because they know that if we have children, we also have young families. And that means that we're, that we're reaching the next, which is a beautiful thing. That means that God is doing something here. And that is a beautiful thing. And so to be a part of that is really helpful. And here you go. Here's what you need to understand about our burgeoning children's ministry, which is when I first came here on an average Sunday, we would have 18 children in children's ministry. That was when this church was first getting started. Now it's not uncommon for us to have 130 or 140 in children's ministry. It's amazing. And there are some days when we just, we, we can't take any more children in, in the rooms. That's a great problem to have. And here's what you need to know. The fact that we're always looking for volunteers in children's ministry is not because children's ministry isn't managed well. That's not why. The reason is because children's ministry is led really well. It's led so well that we have families who want to be a part of it and children who want to be a part of it. So the problem we have with with needing volunteers all the time is because it's a great ministry. That's why. And it's well led by Tyler James and by Heather Miller. And so to be able to participate in that would be a beautiful thing. Uh, Here's the other thing I want to mention. And this this is not to discount... Uh, those of you who are parents with children in your house who serve in children's ministry, but I will tell you this: when I walk up and down that that hallway there, out there, and I look in those rooms and I see the number of single people who serve in children's ministry, they have no tangible benefit of serving in children's ministry. They're not thinking I need to serve in children's ministry because I have children and I'm benefiting from this ministry. You know what they're thinking? I'm gonna be a blessing to those parents who need an hour-long break, or if Frank's preaching, a two-hour break on Sunday. You see that? And it's not just single people, but also as I walk up and down that hallway and I see the empty nesters who also, no tangible benefit to them to serve in children's ministry, and yet they're in there serving because they knew what it was like to have kids and need people to help them with children's ministry. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. God calls his people. Here's the second thing. God also equips us. I already mentioned this. God is never going to call you to something without equipping you to be able to do it. Just count on that. Here's the third thing. God's people also teach others. You see that in this paragraph, right? Okay? So what we know, the wisdom we have, the talents and abilities that God has given us and that we've been able to develop, we should share in the body. And I I know this will sound flip, and I don't mean it that way at all, but over the years, I've gotten really good at doing laundry and vacuuming. And if you want help in that, I'd be glad to help you with that. Or if you're sitting next to somebody who really needs some help with that, let me know, and I'll be able to help them with that, okay? More seriously, I'm pretty good at public speaking. And believe it or not, I've actually found that it's part of my ministry That when somebody in our church is getting ready to give a major presentation at their work and they've never done any public speaking and they come and they ask me for help, I'm glad to do that. I'm happy to do that. It's a part of ministry. How would it not glorify God for you to do a good job in your presentation? You ever thought about it that way? All of life is all for Jesus. But one thing we need to consider about this is if you're not humble and teachable, all the teaching in the world is not going to make a bit of difference. And so there has to be relationship there for teaching to take place. How many of you love it when people you have no relationship with and don't know walk up to you and start telling you how to do things? Isn't that one of the joys of life? Okay? you got to start with relationship, and then there has to be humility and teachability in the midst of that. The body needs teachers, but it also needs eager and humble learners. And finally, number four, God's people work together. We are a body and we need one another. We're a part of one another. Read Proverbs. Proverbs is, is, uh, much of Proverbs is about how powerful relationships are for us. The power of community, the power of cooperation. And this is just perfect because just this week I'm finishing a, a book by uh, Dr. Henry Cloud. How many of you know... Henry, you know, okay, you should be reading his stuff. Christian psychologist, uh, he wrote a book, I think the title of it is "Is The Power of the Other, but he's talking about the importance of relationship, the importance of the other, that you can't just do this on your own. And it's a beautiful picture of the body. So that's the setup, and now we're just gonna fly until we get to the end. So chapter 36 the work commences and the people just keep on bringing free will offerings. They just keep bringing all these offerings day after day after day after day. And finally, the, the, the goal of the capital campaign is met. If you remember in one of those earlier chapters, Moses made one of those uh, cardboard uh, thermometers and he was filling it in with marks a lot. As, as people would give, okay? Well, they've blown the top off of that uh, thermometer. So much so, they're so generous, that in chapter 35, I'm sorry, in chapter 36, Moses decrees to the people, we need to take a break from you guys giving. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine any ministry going, we need to take a break from you all giving? How about that? That's how strong the response is. And so the work of the tabernacle moves forward full steam, Chapter 36 also describes the building of the tabernacle itself, and we have pictures of a lot of this stuff. So here's the tabernacle, and again, great detail is given to the curtains and to the framing wood with the acacia wood and, 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 and to the pillars and to the entrance. And then chapter 37 describes the construction of all of the accoutrement, the furnishings and the furniture that's going to go into the tabernacle and into the court of the tabernacle. And so you have the Ark of the Testimony, which is Harrison Ford's favorite uh, part of the furnishings. And you have the, the table of the bread of presents and the drink offerings. And you have the golden lampstand, which is to light the tabernacle but is also symbolic of the tree of life. And then you have the altar of the incense for the prayers going up to God. And again, great detail for all of these things with special emphasis on the, on the acacia wood and the gold and the silver and the bronze and the, and the blue and purple and scarlet uh, color scheme and the use of fine fabrics such as the twined linen. All of these materials, by the way, again, emphasize the gravitas, the weightiness of the Lord who will inhabit with his people the tabernacle. And then chapter 38 continues the accoutrement, the construction of the altar of burnt offerings. And then there's the bronze wash basin. And then, of course, the outer court of the tabernacle is constructed. And the reader is given great detail on the pillars and the hangings and the use of bronze for the outer court. And then at the end of chapter 38, there's an inventory of all the materials that are used in the project. And, I, and I've looked, and there's different ways of figuring this, but the most common way is this. There was more than one ton of gold used. There was more than four tons of silver used. And there was about two and a half tons of bronze used in the construction of the tabernacle. And remember, this was made to be mobile. It was made to be broken down and carried wherever they went. So they needed like hundreds of people to be able to carry uh, this tabernacle around. And then here comes chapter 39. Chapter 39 is solely dedicated to describing the making of the priestly garments. And so in chapter 39, uh, God tells the priests to go online and to scour the internet on, for deals on shirts and pants, which mostly came from Nordstrom's rack and, and, and Old Navy. Actually not, but it is fascinating The longest section in this part of Exodus is devoted to the making of the priest' ephod. The longest section is devoted to this, the stones and the engravings that they're going to wear, the making of the breastplate, the incredible detail with the 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And then, of course, there's the robe and the turban and the crown, and of course, the undergarments for the priests. I mean, this is the Bible, and it's talking about the undergarments for the priests. That's how detailed it gets. And finally, at the end of chapter 39, it's all completed. And even though they honored the Sabbath every single week, they honored the Sabbath and took a day off, they still finished in time to be able to build the tabernacle and furnish it so that their first celebration in the tabernacle was on the the one-year anniversary to the day of them leaving Egypt. And, And listen to what it says at the end of chapter 39. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all of its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the covering of the tan ram skins and the goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all of its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamp set and all its utensils. And the oil for the light, and the golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all of its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting the finely worked garments for the ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for the service as priests. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. And then we come to the last chapter, chapter 40, and it starts like this. The day the Lord's... Spoke to Moses, I'm sorry, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And after that, there were instructions on how they were to furnish it after it was built. And rather, rather beautifully, we then read about Aaron and his sons coming in. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest, and you shall bring his sons also and put coats on them. Uh, reading that, I, can't, I couldn't help but be reminded of what this looks like now in the New Testament because of Christ. And that's found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, verses 9 and 10. Peter writes this, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Can you hear the Exodus theme in all of that? That we are now the tabernacle, we are now the temple, we are now uh, the priests, all of us. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Exodus comes to its end by telling the reader that Moses and the people did all that was commanded of them and they finished their work and God in his glory dwelled with the people of Israel. And, and, and it's interesting, if you, if you do a study on the Hebrew word that we translate as glory, we, we find that the word actually means weightiness or heaviness, that it's something that outweighs everything else. God's glory is bigger and heavier and more wholesome than anything else. He has significance, he has authority, He has gravitas. He has wholeness, not holiness. He does have that, but he also has wholeness. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I want to say it again. The tabernacle that was built here is a picture of every instance in which God was trying to dwell with his people, or he did dwell with his people, or he is dwelling with his people, or he will dwell with his people. The tabernacle is a picture of the Garden of Eden in chapters 1 and 2. God walked every day with Adam and Eve until they sinned. And it wasn't God who walked away from the relationship, it was Adam and Eve. Read chapter 3. Adam and Eve hid from God after they sinned. And then the tabernacle is also a picture of Israel, the nation of Israel. God chose a people to be with. And it's interesting because He didn't cho- choose the best people, and He didn't choose the richest people, and He didn't choose the most uh, impressive or accomplished people, but rather He just chose a people. That he wanted to love and show mercy to. That's the Israelites, and that's you and I today. And then it's a picture of the temple, the permanent temple that was built in Jerusalem hundreds of years later. God gave his people the permanent tabernacle, one that did not need to be carried from here to there so that he could dwell with his people in Jerusalem. And then it's a picture in the New Testament of the church, Jesus with his people, the groom with the bride, the king with his body, the head with his body. The universal body of Christ expressed in local faith communities like Redemption Arcadia where Jesus and his people dwell together and it is a picture of what's coming. The new Jerusalem. Let me read these verses. These are some of the best verses ever. Starting in chapter 21 of Revelation, John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven And the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Well, why was the sea no more? That's metaphorical, allegorical language. Sea represented darkness, chaos, and confusion. How many of you would love to live in a place finally for eternity that had no darkness, chaos, or confusion? That's where we're destined, in this new Jerusalem. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And then later on in chapter 21, it ends like this. John writes, and I saw no temple in this new city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's not going to be a building like this because the temple is going to be the city and all of us dwelling with God and Jesus. And the city had no sun or moon to shine in it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. It's going to be light all the time because God is there, his glory shining. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory of the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is going to be a place without sin. And it wraps like this, 22, starting in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And I love this, I love this. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and, and, and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. There will be no need of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We're going to reign in the new Jerusalem with Jesus. That's where we are headed. This is the new eternal Eden, the eternal tabernacle, the eternal temple, the eternal Israel, the eternal church. And through Christ, you and I will will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And God, we thank you for Exodus and how it points us to who you are. It points us to who Jesus is. It points us to the gospel. It points us to order and it points us to restoration and redemption. And God, thank you for that, for that great gift. We love you and we praise you for this gift. God, give us boldness and courage. Not because we're great, but because you're great and you are with us. Give, us, give that to us now. We pray that in Jesus' name and it's by your Holy Spirit we come to you. Amen.